Good morning. It is so good to see you today. My name is Thomas, and I am one of your pastors here. I spend much of my time, especially here at Central Campus, working with our community groups uh, and our classes, our equipping, and, and all the ways that we seek to form Christ in us. Uh, but today, it's my privilege to proclaim this word to you. So I hope if you brought your Bible, I really encourage that physical Bible. Um, I don't know about you, when I get my phone out, i just so distracted. Uh, if you have it here or at home, I know many people still live streaming with us, so uh, get out your Bible and turn to Deuteronomy 4 right there at the beginning. It's on page 200 for me. Probably not the right one for you, but just some interesting information. So we are continuing our series through the book of Deuteronomy today, and here we are, we've landed in chapter 4. Um, and, well, I think... If, if you've ever been in a, in a serious relationship, or if you have ever watched a romantic comedy, at a certain point, you have, you've seen this phenomenon where uh, it's just not clear where the relationship stands. And what are we? And are we using the L word, love? And are you my boyfriend? Are you my girlfriend? Are you? It's time to define the relationship. What, what do I owe to you? And what do you expect of me? What, what, what are the, the rights and responsibilities that we have here? Um, of course, today, it takes on a much more serious tone because in, in today's passage, uh, Moses is going to make clear the relationship between God and his people. Moses, uh, as we remind ourselves in Deuteronomy, is with the people of Israel who have left Egypt and slavery there and uh, just an 11 days journey, they travel across, they leave through the Red Sea and all that. They come to the edge of the promise, they fail. And so God turns them back into the wilderness for 40 years of wandering until that whole generation is gone. And they are back at the promised land. They get a second chance. Um, and these sermons are Moses, you know, 120 years old, giving sort of his final word to the people of Israel, sitting on the plains of Moab with the, the promised land in the background. And the question that rings in the air is, what will be different this time? And our passage today intends to answer this question by showing us the relationship between God and his people. God always uh, uh, relates to his people through covenant. You heard that word in the song, such a wow, wonderful song. I don't know about you, as I hear that song, just streams of images of God's faithfulness come through my mind. Love that. Um, but of God's covenant, What's a covenant? We don't use that word very often. Probably the closest analogy and maybe the place we'd use it most often is in marriage. It's sort of this unique blend of law and love. Uh, it, it lays out expectations and responsibilities. And so today, we are going to learn about God's covenant with his people. Uh, not only with his people back then, but with us today. What should we expect from God? What does he expect from us? And how do we accomplish it? Those are the three questions we're going to answer today. And the theme over all of it is really the theme over our whole series because this passage is, is so foundational to the book of Deuteronomy. So I'm just going to proclaim this to you from Deuteronomy 4. Listen and live. Listen and live. This passage will show us what it means for us to be in a covenant relationship with God by answering the big, three biggest questions that we need to know. What do we do? Why do we do it? And how do we do it? If you want to write those down, those will be sort of the three big headings. What do we do? Why do we do it? And how do we do it? What, why, how? Pretty simple. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, help us now to hear your words. 
Help me to speak only the things that you are saying to your people today. Help all of us to have open ears and open hearts to see, as, to see you as you are, to see your faithfulness and, and to respond with faithfulness to you. And help us, most of all, to know what it means to be in a covenant relationship with the creator of all. That's you. Do all this and more for the glory of King Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, as I said, what, why, and how? What do we do? What do we do? We, see, we learn the question uh, right there in verse 1. He, and now, O Israel, listen. Listen to the statutes and rules that I am teaching you and do them. Listen. Well, of course, there's much more to listen than just listening, than just making sure that the sound waves sort of hit our ears. What does, what does this passage mean when it tells us to be sure we listen? That listening, the passage actually tells us two things that listening means. The first one we see in verse 2. You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. So the first thing that listening means is that we listen to the whole word of God and nothing but the word of God. We don't add to the word of God, nor do we take away from it. We take it as it is, which means we take God as he is. We don't have to speculate about who God is. He has revealed himself, both through his marvelous acts in history, just like we just sung about and we'll speak about today, but he has also given us his word. He's made himself clear. We must and be faithfully listening to him, avoid the temptation to make God in our own image, to treat him as we would like him to be rather than as he reveals himself to be. To, to create a God whose priorities and sensibilities and uh, actions match what we would expect sort of an ideal God to be. We don't come to the Bible with our imagination of what a perfect divine being would be like and then see if God is like that. We do it just the other way around. Uh, now, this is important uh, because there are inevitably things in the Bible that will rub us the wrong way. Uh, if you haven't gotten there yet, keep reading. Um, you will find them. Uh, and, and that shouldn't bother us, I don't think, because it's ultimately evidence that God's word is not uh, merely a human product. No one thought up the Bible. Otherwise, there would be certain cultures and, and places and nations where there would be nothing offensive about the Bible. It would fit perfectly with what everyone expected, uh, and you would say, you know, it seems like maybe they just made this up because this God looks a lot like a certain country's God. No, God, God's word will always sort of rub us in, in certain wrong ways. Now, I'll, I'll mention this, and I know Dave talked about this last week a little bit, but uh, in, sorry, I meant to say Doug uh, preached about this a little bit last week, but in chapter three and in chapter uh, Two, in the latter parts of chapter 2, we get to the, the case of Israel overrunning uh, Og of Bashan. And we read about the conquest of Bashan and, and God sending his people in um, to take over the land. And in fact, of course, the whole book of Deuteronomy has to do with God sending his people to go and fight battles uh, to clear out the promised land. And for some of us, probably that uh, rubs us the wrong way. The idea that God would send his people to go in judgment against another nation and in war. Uh, well, because we're here sort of talking about, you know, when things rub us the wrong way, I want to give you at least one principle for how to deal with, with it when you find things like that. 
Uh, the first question you need to ask is, is this saying what it seems like it's saying? What I think it's saying? First thing you need to be clear about. Uh, especially as we read through the book of Deuteronomy and we read about the conquest of the promised land. Um, the first thing is that th this is not a case of the big, strong, big, bad Israelites coming in against the weak, little, poor, little, you know, people in the promised land, the Canaanites. No, actually, the Israelites have just, like I said, completed military training. Um, they have, you know, their clothes, they've worn the same clothes for 40 years. They've, you know, the same weapons or all, all of that. Um, and in fact, we see that in, in chapter 3, verse 11, we have this really strange note. L look there with me. Uh, for only Og, the king of Bashan, was left of the remnant of the Rephaim. Behold, his bed was a bed of iron. Is it not in Rabbah of the Ammonites? Nine cubits, that is uh, about 14 feet long, was its length. And four cubits, that is about six feet wide, was its breadth. Why is it telling us about Og's bed? Why do we care about Og's bed? His point was that this was an army full of giants. As it giant people. This is David versus Goliath. Um, and, he, and they come up against the cities. When we think of city, the first thing that we think of is, I don't know, New York City. And so here's Israel coming in with their tanks, I guess, and their nuclear warheads, and they're blowing, you know, poor little Og off the face of the earth. In fact, it was more like David with just his sort of puny little army of people that have just been wandering around the desert, eating bread that fell from the sky, coming up against the, the military power of the century. So first of all, it's not the strong... Uh, Israelites versus the weak little poor Bashanites. Secondly, it wasn't without warning. First through uh, Rahab and secondly through Abraham, um, through whom God promised 400 years of patience to Og and his people. So, even then, we look at this and we, we have to deal with the fact that there are going to be parts of it that, that sort of rub us the wrong way. And we'll talk more about that as we get into chapter 7. We get a lot more into uh, the conquest of the promised land. But, God will never fit, fit into our perfect little box. We need to let God define his terms. That's the first thing that it means to listen, is to take God as he is um, and let him decide. Um, some of you might know that Thomas Jefferson was a famous lover of the Bible and a lover of Jesus, uh, and yet he had a very different idea of who Jesus ought to be. He sets a very, kind of a bad example for us. Jesus read through the New Testament, and he really loved the philosophy of Jesus and, and the ethics of Jesus. He thought Jesus was a wonderful person. Uh, but he held a, a naturalistic philosophy, he didn't think there was anything such as uh, like a supernatural reality. And so he put together his own Bible. And what he did was he literally sat down with a razor and some glue, and he took his, his New Testament, and he cut out all the parts of the New Testament they didn't like, and he took the parts they did like, and he made his own Bible called the Jefferson Bible. And you can actually find this, out, it's out there on the internet. Um, he filtered, that is, he filtered who God was through his expectations and ended up with a God in his own image. And we might kind of laugh at that and say, ah, Thomas Jefferson, what a silly guy. But we all need to deal with this. Um, with God, it's an all or nothing deal. We can't have half of Jesus. Now, what does it look like for us to listen to the whole, whole truth, nothing but the truth, just as it tells us to here? Well, the first thing is, read your whole Bible. Don't, don't camp out in the spots you, you particularly like. Um, read the whole thing. Enjoy the whole Jesus. Find the places where it does rub you the wrong way. Maybe you're here and you're an unbeliever and, and you're not sure you're confident about God's word or about who Jesus is or about anything that I've been saying so far. Well, first of all, welcome. I'm glad you're here. And I welcome your questions. We all do. Uh, 
we have been thinking through the faith of the Christian faith for the last 2,000 years and walking with God for, for, for a long time. So I hope you don't worry that you'll come and you will just not find an answer for your questions. They deserve answers. Uh, but, but no, someone has asked your question before. So have confidence. Come and ask your questions. And if you're a believer, well, I want to know, what's the Bible passage that, you know, if the person that I was just speaking to came up to you after the service and said, hey, what about... What's the one you hope they don't ask about? What's the one you're not sure about? Let this be God's leading to you that you should go study up, find out what you really think, don't sweep it under the rug and pretend like, I'll just pretend like this part isn't, isn't rubbing me the wrong way, and deal with it. God has something to show us there. So first, listening means the whole God, the whole word, nothing but the word. Second thing that listening means is in verse 6, and this is very plain. It says uh, about uh, God's words, keep them and do them. Keep them and do them. It's pretty plain. Keep God's words. That is, know God's words. Keep them. Don't let them get out. Don't, uh, our, our hearts will constantly sort of be pushing God's word to the periphery of our life unless we bring it back in. Keep them and do them. God cares that we know him, and obey him. To be in a covenant relationship with God means we obey him. When we see anything in our life uh, that does not live in line with what he has called us to be, we change. We obey him. Full stop, no qualifications, no what ifs, what abouts, just we obey him. How, how might this look? How might it look for you to really do this? Well, first of all, um, the next section of Deuteronomy, after the next couple weeks, and this is something that we'll get in actually on the other side of Easter and the other side of the summer, um, is the Ten Commandments. And one way that you could begin to, to listen and really press into listening to God is to memorize the Ten Commandments. Memorize them. Think deeply, not only knowing them, but think about what it would look like to do them. Certainly when God says, for instance, do not steal, he doesn't you know, obedience to that doesn't simply look like, you know, not taking anything from the store or from your neighbor's yard or whatever it might be. There's, there's also a positive vision. What does it mean to be a, a non-stealer? If God's word against is, is do not steal, what is God's word for? It means that we would, instead of taking from others, we would breathe out blessing and seek ways to bless others. To begin to think about that. Um, secondly, if you more enjoy sort of the classroom or the group environment, um, we're doing a book study just on the other side of Easter in the Apostles' Creed, thinking about this ancient document and its relevance for us today. Uh, join that. And the third thing, and this can be an ongoing thing, is to read the passage that's going to be preached each week before you come. We send it out in, this, in the weekly email. You can get it on Friday mornings. If you're not signed up for the email, you can go to Connect Counter and, and sign up. Um, but we imagine that this would be sort of a waterfall of the word in our, in our church. That you hear it, on, you read it on Friday, you begin to think about what is the word Lord saying to me through this word. Then you hear it on Sunday when it's proclaimed to you, like I'm doing right now. And then maybe in your community group or in your family in another setting, you begin to apply it really deeply to your life. Listening means keeping and doing God's word. So we must listen and live. That is what it means to listen. Now, what does it mean? Uh, for, and that's the answer to what do we do? We listen. Now, why do we do it? Why do we do it? 
uh, it says again in verse 1, And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and rules that I am teaching you and do them, that you may live. That you may live. And this follows from our first point. Listen and live. Why do we listen? Because we will live. God's promise to us is that we will live. If in, if in every covenant, in, in every relationship, there are certain rights and responsibilities, obligations and opportunities, we would listen to God because he promises life. Now, what does it mean to live? God shows us two things. Why do we do it? First of all, because disobedience is deadly. Verse 3 says this, and this probably, as you heard it, you probably felt a little confused, and I want to explain it to you. Uh, Verse 3 says, Your eyes have seen what the Lord did at Baal Peor, for the Lord your God destroyed from among you all the men who followed the Baal Peor, but you who held fast to the Lord your God are all alive today. The first reason that we listen to God is because to not listen to God is deadly. And that's, I mean, isn't that just the most most plain and straightforward sense of the word live? It's the opposite of die, right? And, and the occasion that, that Moses is referring to as he talks to his people, right, on the plains of Moab about to enter the promised land was something that happened maybe a week, maybe a month before this, where several of the, uh, the people of Israel went after the Baal. The Baal is sort of a, a tribal deity that was there in the land called Peor. Um, and we read about it in the book of Numbers. If you want to go and investigate that a little bit more, I'd suggest it. Um, and God removed the faithlessness, the, those who refused completely to listen to God, he removed them through death. We must listen to God as they said must listen because disobedience is deadly. And this is simply the, this is the natural consequence of turning away from the author of life. Is, is, it's sensible that the consequence would be that we are choosing death, whether in the short term uh, and You've experienced it, even if you're in Christ, you've experienced what it feels like uh, to not obey God for a season or for a time. That's why we come and we confess each week. We need to come before God again. Or over the long term, death, the greatest symptom of disobedience in the world is the fact that we have to die. Disobedience is deadly. Second reason that we, why we listen is because we get to know God. We get to know God. Parkview Church, The God of the universe, high and holy, wants to know you. And you can know him. Actually know him. He wants to reveal himself to you. And and he wants you to share yourself with him. He wants to be, like Jesus said to his followers, your friend. It almost feels it almost feels obscene. It almost feels unholy to say this, doesn't it? To be in covenant relationship with you, to know you, and for you to know him deeply, what he loves and what he hates, what, he, what would he do in any given situation? He wants to know you. Now, I know for, for us, even as I explain it and, and try to unpack a little bit of the wonder of it, it feels kind of commonplace to us. Yeah, have a personal relationship with God. That's been sort of a cornerstone of Parkview Church. We need a personal relationship with God, a covenant relationship with God. But for the time that this was written, uh, when Moses was speaking these words in Deuteronomy, this idea was so far-fetched, so radical. It was offensive, even. The way that ancient people related to the gods was always, in some sense, kind of experimental. 
you did not know if you experience blessing in your life, the gods must be happy with me, I guess. If, if you experience bad luck or the crops fail or you get sick or whatever it might be, I guess one of the gods, I don't know which one, is sort of upset with me. There was this ancient anxiety about your relationship with the requirements of who? Uh, who someone. Um, there was a Sumerian prayer found in Nineveh in, in the uh, 7th century BC that sounds like this. Oh God, whoever you are, many are my wrongs, great are my sins. I don't know what I've done wrong. I don't know what sin I've committed. I, I, God, whoever he is, is punishing me. I'm miserable. I'm blindfolded because I can't see. Turn towards me, merciful God, as I implore you. Doesn't that kind of break your heart? Now, the idea of, of God as lawgiver, and as I proclaim to you that we must obey this God, right, who gives us his law from on high, it, it, it might bother you. You might say, how can we accept that? But you must know that if you don't accept God's words as your authority, it's not as if we have a choice between choosing God's words or sort of choosing this sort of abstract freedom where we, by our own sort of self-determination and human power, can decide that we are, are you know, fine. No. Here's what Amy Poehler said in a New York Times uh, interview, or magazine interview this week. When you're up around 50, she said, you're always a little out of breath from outrunning the voices. Whether they be your own or society's, a certain feeling of your irrelevance. You have to outrun them or do some art of war stuff and turn around and surrender to them. The most enlightened being can't avoid them. These voices, this, this inner sense of what she calls irrelevance, which makes sense for her as a famous person, always, always one step ahead of the voices getting to you, that you're not as good as you think you are, that you're not. What is she saying? It breaks my heart just as much as the Sumerian prayer. What she's saying, she's saying, oh God, whoever you are, wherever you are, I don't know what I've done wrong, please have mercy on me. There is this inherent religiosity in all of us. We need a word from outside of us. We need something from outside of us. None of us can really be as self-reliant as we think we can be. That ancient anxiety that we saw in, in, in this age, in the age of Deuteronomy, in, in the Sumerian prayer, and in the voice of Amy Poehler, okay, Parks and Rec, you heard of her? That ancient anxiety is not so ancient at all. Have you felt that sense? Never quite doing enough. That there, there is this accusing voice, this sort of sense that what, who I am and what I've done don't quite measure up. Always sort of one step behind you. Always, always searching, always needing to compete, always falling short. This unending drive for the next experience, the next accomplishment. You were made in the image of a God who speaks his law, who speaks his word. That is true, and, and we can't escape it. If we try to, we'll just be like Amy. I pray she finds something better than this, but we'll always, always be wondering, have I measured up? Am I good enough? We won't escape it. And by the way, the, the law, the word that we find as a substitute to God's word, it will crush you. You will never satisfy it. You will always feel like it's right at your door, right about to get you. Am I really a good person? You will wonder till the day you, you leave, till the day you die. And by the way, so will God's law. God's will, law will crush you too, unless you hear this third point. 
unless you hear this third point about how we can be faithful to the covenant of God. So why do we listen? Well, we listen because listening means living in all that that entails, knowing God and, of course, just not dying. But we must listen and live. That's what we do. We listen. Why do we do it? To live. And finally, how do we do it? And the passage gives us, again, two things to remember. And the simple answer is we do it by proclaiming or declaring God's works. Hmm. Let's read verse 9. It says, Only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known. Speak them. To your children and your children's children. And he goes on and on. There is an organic unity between God's words and God's works. They are both ways that God reveals himself, his character, his being, the way that he acts in history, and the way that he speaks in a certain place and time. And one of the main ways that God calls us to be faithful to his covenant and to remain faithful to his covenant is by speaking God's words to one another. Now, in this passage, it's talking about family, and I'll, I'll apply that to the family situation in just a moment, but let's remember the words of Jesus, who, when his family came and, and thought he was sort of doing something wrong in the temple, causing a big stir, what did he say? He said, who are my mother and my brother and my sister? It's those who do the will of God. So for us, it's not, not restricted to family, but whoever might cross my path. The world, Parkview, has gone totally wrong. Perhaps you've noticed it is pressed in our face every day. God created our world good, but sin entered, and every bit of pain and sorrow and disease and decay and death can trace his back and, and has its spiritual lineage in a broken covenant with God, a broken relationship with God. And God intends to fix everything. Yes, everything. God intends to fix it all, and he will. And how will he do it? Through you speaking God's words to your neighbor. Whether it's the neighbor in the seat next to you, your literal brother or sister, or your brother from another mother, or your spouse, or your roommate, or whoever it might be. I hope I have made clear through just these first, you know, 20 minutes or so that faithfulness, covenant faithfulness, needs knowing God's words and doing them. We must simply obey. But covenant faithfulness, if we take this passage seriously, covenant faithfulness does not end with us simply knowing God's words and doing God's words. In fact, we must proclaim God's words. We must proclaim them. And this is how God plans to change the world. Do you want to be part of that? God is just fixing everything, and he has a part for you to play. You, you have a part to play. God has been planning you for a thousand generations in either direction for you with your exact makeup, your personality, your history, your knowledge, everything that you're able to do for a thousand generations in either way to bring you to this exact place, sitting in that exact chair today, so that you can do things that he has prepared for you to do. You have specific words that he has put into your mouth, words of reminder, of challenge, of encouragement, of questions, and more. To remind one another, to be, that is, 
transmitters of God's word, God's words as proclaimers of it. You are not just a repository of Bible knowledge, knowledge about who God is. No, God has made you not to be a reservoir of God's word, but a river. You are designed to take in God's truth and take it somewhere. And by the way, that is not, I hope you see, this is the Bible speaking. This is not Parkview's wonderful strategy that we have taken a few months and thought of, ah, we think this would be a good way to sort of grow our church or something. No, this is how God is saving the world through his people. And this, if I am completely honest, is an area where I feel that we have really fallen short in leading you. For too long, we have treated you as reservoirs of God's word rather than rivers. Because it is, if I'm honest, I'll have my personal confession time. It's easy. It's easier. And it makes, it makes me feel good. It makes, makes us feel good, right? That, that you sort of need us. You need to come to church and we'll fill you with knowledge and come back and I'll do it again. And you sort of need me and my skills, are, they're important and, and I feel like the expert. And it makes me feel like I'm, you know, I'm earning respect and, and I'm significant when I ask very little of you. But the result is an atrophied church. Parkview Church will be a vibrant and healthy and God-honoring and covenantally faithful church to the degree that we embrace this responsibility. That God, the resurrected Christ, Ephesians 4 reads, go read that this week, that God has given the pastors to equip the saints. You are the saints, by the way. It's not just special people, it's all who have been redeemed by Christ to give the saints, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. I can only do so much, but you can do much more. Here's what this might look like for you to proclaim God's words, to proclaim his works. First of all, on a Sunday, stay after church. Don't run out the door, stay here. These people, this is one of our primary contexts for proclaiming God's words and works to one another. We do it through singing. We do it through confession. We do it, Craig is going to come up soon and he's going to lead us in um, communion. Another way that we proclaim God's words. But you are meant to proclaim it too. You are meant to come and, and proclaim it to one another. Stay after church. Look not just forward, but look around. There are people here. I know, they're already believers maybe. Okay, that's great. That, we're not just talking about evangelism. We're talking about the whole way that God's body a body of Christ builds itself up in love is by proclaiming God's words to one another. It can be so simple. It can be, ah, something that you learned from the sermon today. I hope you learned something. If God is gracious, you will will have learned something today. Asking one good question, even just getting to know them. Second way it might look is by reaching out to a fellow community group member or fellow church member that you know, texting them or emailing them just encouragement from the Bible. So super simple. And finally, in your family atmosphere, your roommate atmosphere, wherever you might be, in your apartment or in your home, worshiping the Lord together, that might sound like such a huge responsibility. And if it is, I just encourage you to take five minutes, read one short passage of the Bible. Um, I would start with an epistle, or a, a, an epistle, a letter in the New Testament, like Romans or like um, Ephesians or something like that, something simple. Read it for five minutes with your family at mealtime and just ask, what does this teach us about God and how do we obey it? Start simple. But like I said, there are two ways that we learn the how of covenant obedience. And the second is this. We, we must not just remember and remind one another of God's words. We must 
remember God's works. And if you hear nothing else today, I, I hope you hear this, and I hope this settles in deeply. God says that for Israel to trust God's words in the future, they must look backward to God's works in the past. He says, I'm worried that you will forget, so remind one another, remind your children and your children's children of the things you have seen, the things you eyewitnessed. That is to say, God's works authenticate his words. God is not like the weatherman. Okay, sorry if, the, if you're in the weatherman. No, I hope you're not here. God is not like the weatherman where he's told us we're about to get a foot of snow and the roads are going to be a sheet of ice and then we go out the next day, doesn't happen. And, and his, his works become sort of unreliable over time because they have not authenticated themselves. No, no, no. What God says will come to pass. How do we know that God's word is trustworthy today? By looking at his works in the past. For Israel, that meant they should look back. Um, look back. God points back to the Exodus. He says, remember when I called you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery where you were for 400 years, and by a mighty arm, I saved you from your slave masters. Uh, remember the 10 plagues? God says, remember Mount Sinai? Remember the burning mountain and all that I did to rescue you? How I led you through the Red Sea? He says, in the future, if ever in the future, you wonder whether I love you, whether if I listen to you, will I really live? Will, will I really, all those things that you promise? Remember the day that I saved you before you ever obeyed me. If in the future, if you ever wonder whether I am powerful to save, remember that I saved you out of Egypt, that great stronghold of military might, and that surely, therefore, I will save you today. Israel can trust God's covenant, Moses says, because it is based on God's faithfulness in the past. And God is a man of his word. But we know something that they didn't. One better than Moses was coming. Bringing a better covenant based on better promises. And it too offered life to all those who would listen. Jesus, part for you, is the ultimate word from God, John 1 tells us. Jesus is the ultimate word from God, the ultimate revelation of who God is, the ultimate covenant Lord who doesn't point back to the Exodus or to the conquest of Canaan. What does he point back to? We, we can trust God's word today because Jesus came in flesh and blood to dwell among us, to show us the full revelation of who God is. And though he was the ultimate example of covenant faithfulness, he knew God, yes, he did what God wanted. In every example, he was obedient. The curse of the covenant, that is death, fell upon him. God, God treated him like a covenant breaker so that covenant breakers like you and me, even though we don't listen, even for the times when we don't listen, we can live and find life everlasting. Jesus is the true and better Moses, who holds out not just life, but eternal life, if only we will listen to him today. Won't you, won't you come to him? Do you see this merciful Christ, this covenant Lord, who when we fail him, dies for us? In a moment, Craig is, is going to come up and lead us in communion and read us uh, that wonderful passage in 1 Corinthians 11 where it says um, that on the, night when, when, on the night when Jesus was betrayed, 
with our faithlessness fully in his sights, he said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, both now and in the future. Would you consider the love of Christ as you do this? Consider also what word he has put in your mouth that we can listen and live and proclaim the greatness of this God. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for your promises. We're grateful that if we listen to you, we listen to your son, his call to turn from our sins, to listen to him, that we can find life everlasting, that you have died to save us covenant breakers, us, we who fail to listen so often. You have come and in the midst of our disappointments and in the midst of the ways that we have turned from you, you have offered us life. Help us come to you. Help us be honest with ourselves and honest with one another and help us to become people who proclaim these things to one another today and and going forward. Amen.